You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 494 of this podcast. Today is November 5th, 2022, which also happens to mean that it is my birthday. Which birthday is it, you might ask? How old am I now? Well, I'll say this. It is a multiple of 12. (laughs) I am three dozen years old, if you well, I'm 36. I, I'm 36. Uh, not old. 37, I guess, is when I'm supposed to say that line from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I'm 37. I'm not old. But uh, actually, one of my kids was telling the flooring guys yesterday as they were finishing up redoing all the flooring on our main floor that tomorrow is my dad's birthday. And the lead guy who... I hear is named Jeremiah from Daniel, who was very uh, conversant with him, very much uh, getting to know him, asking him if he was married, if he had kids, what he does for fun, does he play video games? Oh, what are you doing there? And how does that work? And oh, this looks really good. And do you speak Spanish? And things like that. Uh, Jeremiah says, oh, yeah, how how old is your dad going to be? And Enoch said, uh, 36. He says, wow, yeah, your dad's not very old, is he? He's he's still pretty young. And I thought to myself upstairs as I was trying to work up here, getting things cleaned up in Lauren's new sewing room, I thought, you know, you're right. I am still fairly young. I'm not old yet at 36. Sometimes I feel uh, older than that by a good bit. Like, for instance, this week, my second week with a new job, my Birthday coming up, getting sick, having the whole main floor's uh, furniture moved out to the garage and down to the basement and upstairs. I felt quite tired and we didn't sleep well for some reason. Our youngest, Andrew, was just not sleeping well this week. So I felt a good bit older than usual, actually. But it's official today. I am 36 and... As such, you might be wondering, what do I want to talk about? My birthday, it's a special day, it's a special occasion. What do I want to discuss? Well, this may come as a surprise or a shock to some, but uh, I actually want to pick up our last podcast episode topic and finish it. Uh, With it being my birthday, I would like to not think that I only have told you about the article by Jonathan Lehman over at Nine Marks. I want to finish going through some of the comments that I had jotted down, thoughts, reflections, pushback questions, uh, even agreement, yes, because some of what he said I agree with. I want to finish that up. I also want to talk about some of what's in the news with the election just a few days away now. Uh, I actually was mistaken. And let me admit that. 
I thought the election was going to be this week without looking at the dates because some years the election is on my birthday. November 5th, it has happened, has been election day here in the U.S. For some reason or another, it's not this year. So I thought it was in the run-up a week or so ago. I was saying, oh, it's going to be next week, like this week. And it turns out it has not been unless you mail in your ballot uh, ahead of time, you go in and do some early voting, but it's actually going to be next week. Therefore, with it being an important thing to me, how the election goes, how we vote, how the country goes, we happen to live here. My wife and my children and I happen to live here, all the people that I know for the most part, uh, although I do know some people around the world, come to think of it. Nevertheless, it's an important thing, and I want to be able to give you some updates and comment on these things. And more to the point, I want us to be intentional in how we cultivate our own worldview. What our attitude is, I don't want us to be overly uh, positive about these things, as if it's all going to work out, doesn't matter who we vote for, it'll all be fine. It's all the same. I think that's wrongheaded. I think that's a very simple way to approach these things. I also don't want to be fatalistic to where I say, well, it doesn't really matter who you vote for. They're all awful categorically. If they're running for office, if they have any chance of winning, they're corrupt, they're awful, have nothing to do with any of them, don't even pay any attention to it. Just spare yourself. I don't want to say that either because I think that's mistaken. I know people I love and appreciate on a personal level who I disagree with profoundly politically and philosophically when it comes to that. I think that's wrong. I think that's not a helpful attitude to have. And I reject that. Even though I've been reading, and I need to pick up reading again, the very uh, bleak histories of the Federal Reserve and the way that central banking has related to our political process here in the U.S. the past century or so, or century and a half, if you will. I've been reading those things And I do pause at the possibility that it's all rigged and it's been rigged for quite some time. It's all bought and paid for. And the politicians, the celebrities, the commentators, the publishing houses, the newspapers, the TV stations, they are in on it. They're just puppets. That's a possibility. But I reject that In the absence of a clear reason why we should make the jump from saying, hey, there is a conspiracy. Okay, I agree with you. There's a conspiracy. Money plays an outsized role, a much, much bigger role than it should in these things. Uh, Yes, I agree with you. There is a lot of corruption and there's a political machine that plays both sides. Okay, I, I agree. I think you're right. Your candidates that you prefer may never win, or if they do win, you might have to wonder, should you have liked them in the first place after they turn around and vote in ways that you didn't expect? They govern in ways you don't approve of, that they didn't say they were going to vote in those ways. They didn't say they were going to govern in that way. The positions they take maybe were bought and paid for, and they lied 
right? They lied on the campaign trail. They said they were going to do certain things they had no intention of doing just to get you to vote for them. They said they weren't going to do certain things, which they then ended up doing uh, anyways because they're politicians, because they're paid for, because they are mercenaries, they're hired guns. Uh, You know, all that could be a valid concern. All that could be the case. And yet, nevertheless, I don't think it necessarily follows that just because that is sometimes the case, or has often been the case, or even has almost always been the case over the past decades or century or century and a half. Therefore, we are absolved of our responsibility to engage on these things. We still know right and wrong. And here's the test, right? Here's my test for whether knowing the game is rigged or the deck is stacked against you or your opponent societally, socially, politically is cheating and lying Uh, you know, here's the test for whether that should cause us to give up. If there was a chance that you could actually win, would you try? You know, what if part of the cheat is to try and convince you that the cheating is so rampant, you might as well stay home. Don't get involved. Don't pay attention, right? What if part of the cheat is to get you to give up? to be disinterested, to be apathetic, to throw in the towel. I think here of Denethor in The Lord of the Rings and how he's got one of the Palantirs, one of these seeing stones, and he's able to use it to observe what is going on throughout Middle-earth. Unfortunately, Sauron is also able to use that Palantir to get in Denethor's head. And to convince him that there is no point at all. There is no point in resisting what's coming from Mordor. The armies of Mordor coming against Gondor will not be stopped. So give up now. You're just prolonging the agony. Make no preparations. In fact, actively get in the way of someone like Gandalf trying to make preparations. Actively sabotage and undermine through your bad attitude through your selfishness. You know, what if that is part of the cheat here? Is that we're being told there's more of a bogeyman or a stronger bogeyman than there actually is. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. That's what I believe. And I don't think that means I therefore pour every last ounce of my energy and attention into politics. But My chief contention for almost 500 episodes now has been that a lot of what in our day is called political is really not first and foremost political, it's first and foremost spiritual and moral and a matter of truth and goodness or falsehoods and evil according to God. If we go to God's word and we find that this is actually not quite So up in the air. This is not a coin toss. It's not pickles on a hamburger. If we go to God's word and we find that he has spoken to these things and how we then should live and how we should relate and what we should be for and what we should be about, well then, it's not just political. And for too long, I think that's been part of the cheat as well, that we've been told these things are political and then if the Christian starts to weigh in 
and say, aha, wait a second, wait a second, that's wrong what you're doing. That's wrong what you're saying. The way to silence the Christian is to call them an ugly name, to say thereby they will not have a Christian testimony anymore. They're going to lose everything. Not only will they lose the political battle, but they will also lose their friends. They will lose maybe business or employment or a position of authority in a Christian institution that they belong to. They might also lose their testimony, their ability to have a credible Christian witness with those who are not Christians. And a lot of Christians have responded to that bullying tactic in a couple of predictable ways. One being to opt out entirely. Hey, you know what? I care more about my testimony. I care more about fellowship with other saints than I do about any of this other stuff. It's none of my business. I'm going to mind my own business, aspire to live a quiet life, working with my hands, being dependent on no one. Although even there, I would say you can't help but run into so-called politics, even just trying to mind what is legitimately your business. Increasingly, what you might say is your business is up for debate. Nothing is your business. Nothing you would say, nothing you would do, nothing you would choose, nothing you would raise your children to believe, nothing you would teach them to be about or for or believe or say or embody is regarded as sacred by the left. All must submit to their religion, which is to say they don't regard these things as only political either. They use the language of right and wrong, true and false, but they twist it and not for no reason. They have mixed in twisted views of the scripture as well, which is also another reason why Christians can't just opt out. When we see the scriptures being twisted and perverted by those on the left, who want to say there is no such thing as sin except to decry sin, that the only sin really is to judge or to say that what someone else is doing, that they enjoy doing, that they want to do, they want to build a lifestyle out of doing, is sin. That's the only sin, is to sell, is this, is to tell somebody else that they're sinning. That's the only sin. But that's craziness. That's insanity. Not only is that politically nonsense and a recipe for disaster societally, governmentally, politically, in the long run. It's a recipe for anarchy and absolute chaos and bedlam and the collapse of civilization. Also, too, that is disastrous from a spiritual standpoint between you and the good Lord to believe that, to agree with that, to say nothing, to not warn your countrymen, to not warn those who are being led away to the slaughter. God's word says you have blood on your hands if you are silent, if you keep silent, if you do not warn them. So I don't want that to be me, right? I know this is my birthday and this is pretty heavy stuff to be talking about on my birthday, but what I would love for my birthday, honestly, is more friends and family, more countrymen, more of my fellow Americans to grasp this. That's what I really want for my birthday, honestly, really, truly, because I think there's a blessing to be had. I think we're missing it. I think we've been missing it for quite some time. And I, I don't want to miss that blessing. And I'm not talking about prosperity theology. I'm not talking about name it and claim it, health and wealth and all that. But I'm talking about 
God being pleased with the way that we steward what he's entrusted to us. For us to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, even if that's the only real reward we ever get, and to be content with that, that is great gain. That's what the scriptures are talking about when they say that godliness with contentment is great gain. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, when you give, don't give as the Pharisees do, to announce their giving with trumpets and tambourines to be heard and seen by men. This is also why I'm so turned off when I see major institutions and corporations doing advertising campaigns about how much they're giving to charity or to disaster relief or this or that. They announce it with tambourines and trumpets. Why? So they can be seen by men and thought well of. All right, well, I guess you'll get your reward now then. But I think if we are motivated to do our good works for an audience of one, to say what is true, even if no one wants to hear it, because God is pleased by that, God is honored by that, God has given representation by that, If such is our mindset, there's a blessing to be had in that. I want that blessing, not just for me, but I want it for my family, for my friends, for my countrymen, to the greatest extent possible. In other news, speaking of truth and goodness, there's an article by Ryan Saavedra from two days ago at thedailywire.com. Michigan's largest newspaper rebuts Stephen Colbert over false attack on GOP Governor candidate Tudor Dixon, Stephen Colbert, might I just add, is not funny. He is just so not funny. He used to be kind of sort of funny back in the day when he was with Jon Stewart. I think that helped that he was with Jon Stewart. But increasingly, he's uh, just a noisy gong. There's no love there. It's just animus for conservatives, for anybody who gets in the way of the progressive agenda, who gets in the way of the leftist agenda. It's increasingly nonsensical and, quite frankly, sad. It's not even angering. It's just sad. But basically, Stephen Colbert, host of The Late Show, claimed that Dixon, during a debate last week against current Democrat governor Gretchen Whitmer, told a story, and I quote, I had a gentleman come up to me just a few nights ago, And he said, I found content in my school library describing how to have sex to my son. I went to the Democrats and I said, I cannot believe that this is in here. He said, just a few weeks ago, not only was I a Democrat, but I was running for office as a Democrat, Dixon continued. He said, because Democrats won't stand up for our children and go back to the basics, I'm leaving the Democratic Party. Now, Colbert's response in all this was, Dixon's not the only one worried about this issue, so is this guy she totally made up, which is just nonsense, right? This is just, it's, <clears throat> when, when I say it's nonsense, I, I'm trying to be generous, right? What Colbert is saying, it's not only not funny, it doesn't compute. It, like, it's just, I, I can't even begin to describe how silly and pathetic this punchline is. For one, it's not true. Even if Dixon had made up this guy who came up to her at one of her rallies. A lot of American parents are very concerned, very upset, very angry at the sex education and gender theory 
that is being taught to children, to their children, to our children, in the American public schools. Not to my children. This is why we homeschool, but this is what's being taught to children from little on up all across the country. So Colbert is either completely ignorant or he's a total liar. My money's on the latter. I think he's a total liar. Not funny. Not funny at all. See, the, the, the necessity for humor is there has to be a grain of truth in what's being said. A total lie, not funny. Not funny. But as it turns out, Tudor Dixon did not make this guy up. The man she was talking about has a name. It is Khalil Altman. And he spoke with the Detroit Free Press and said, yes, in fact, I'm a real person. My story is real. My switch to the Republican Party is real. Othman is 41 and a Muslim from Dearborn, Michigan. And go figure, a lot of Muslims are very concerned about what is being taught to children in this country with regards to sexuality and gender. It's immoral. It's ungodly. It's wicked. Yes, they recognize that as well. We disagree theologically But if they are going to vote against this, I welcome that. I'm glad. If they're going to leave the Democratic Party over this, I welcome that. I think that's very fine. I think that's wise. I think that's important. But he points out, Khalil Othman, he says, this would have been very easy to fact check. All that Colbert or his team had to do was Google the story and they would have found me. So this is lazy It's ridiculous. It's ignorant. (laughs) It's not a good look. In other words, boy, that really backfired. If the idea was to do a kind of damage control, and again, to try and mock and ridicule and tear down those who get in the way of the leftist agenda, the progressive agenda, so as to make the leftist agenda, the progressive agenda look better by contrast, uh, I would say the opposite effect was achieved here. Uh, Also, too, can I just point out, allow me to point out, have you noticed, and this is a little bit tangential, forgive me, but it is my birthday, so I can go on a tangent if I want to. Between Democrats and Republicans, is it just me, or do the Democrats have a really difficult time putting forward candidates for public office who are female, who are women? who are attractive, who, who are beautiful or aesthetically <laughs> pleasing in the least. Is it just me? I, I just, I really don't see the left and Democrats putting forward beautiful women. It seems like they're all ugly and mean and scary. And by contrast, the candidate for Michigan governor, the Republican candidate, she's a beautiful woman. The current governor of South Dakota is a beautiful woman. Carrie Lake running for Arizona governor is a beautiful woman. And then you look at even just, oh, I don't know, the wife of uh, Ron DeSantis. She's a beautiful woman. Take a look at the other side, and I know this is not super sciencey, but take a look at the other side, Democrats. They are not beautiful women. 
Lori Lightfoot, Kathy Hochul, Gretchen Whitmer. These are not beautiful women. These are scary women, actually. Look at the talking heads on CNN and MSNBC who are women. Now, you might say Mika Brzezinski with uh, Morning Joe and all that. Is she kind of, sort of? No, actually. I mean, if if one did not know what her political leanings were, objectively, just in terms of like raw dimensions of facial features and proportion and, you know, that kind of like, yes, facial features, symmetry there, proportionality. Yes. But it's a funny thing. It's a very, very curious thing. You know, I was asking around the other day as to beauty and is it possible for a beautiful woman to be ugly in the way that she treats people or in the way that she talks to people or in her positions. Can you think of a woman as beautiful when you find out that she's just awful, right? She's abusive. She's mean. She's selfish. She's ignorant. She's got terrible positions. And quite frankly, the consensus from the people I polled, the people I asked informally, friends and family, was uh, no. No, you, you really can't. It's funny how that works. You just can't. You know, I was thinking about here a few years back, I saw this interview, I think when John McCain was running for president, but I saw this interview with Hayden Panettiere, a young blonde actress, used to be the the girl who couldn't be killed in uh, the TV show Heroes, uh, the TV series about superheroes. You know, beautiful young woman, probably about my age, actually, which is to say, I suppose I'm a young man. She started talking in this interview about conservatives and Republicans, and even just as <laughs> not conservative as John McCain was before he passed away, I would say, I wouldn't call him super conservative. Boy, howdy, like the things that she had to say about him were just the ugliest ugliest things and very ignorant and just not very well thought out. And ever since then, I have just not been able to think to myself, boy, Hayden Panettiere is a beautiful woman. Could she be a beautiful woman? Yeah. But with positions like that, thoughts like that, attitudes like that, ways of relating like that to truth and goodness, no, no, not not so much. I, I can't. I can't think that she's a beautiful woman. And I think by contrast, too, a decent woman with good sense, good judgment, prudence, even if she's not otherwise looking at a still picture, this Miss Universe type, whatever that is, she's so much more beautiful holistically as a person. You know, I think this is what the scriptures are talking about. Generally speaking, when we see in the New Testament, Paul saying he doesn't want young women to adorn themselves with the beauty that comes from the outside, first and foremost, braided hair, expensive clothes, pearls. They should focus on inner beauty, first and foremost, a sweet and submissive and godly and pure heart and spirit and disposition that honors the Lord. Have that be where your beauty comes from. But alas, I digress. Tangent, closed. Gretchen Whitmer, 
not uh, beautiful. Tudor Dixon, very beautiful woman. Not that we should vote based on who's better looking, but if we were, if we were, if we were. <laughs> uh, also, speaking of Tudor Dixon, Zach Jewell published a piece yesterday, and I won't get too deep into this. I just thought the headline alone is astounding. Protesting teacher allegedly bites county GOP chairwoman at Tudor Dixon rally. That's the headline. Protesting teacher allegedly bites county GOP chairwoman. What would you like to bet that the teacher protesting was a woman herself as well? Hmm? (laughs) Um, Yes. Uh, Long and short of it, yes. Very uh, odd, very bizarre. I don't see a picture of the teacher in question who did the biting. The name of the county GOP chairwoman is Cheryl Constantino. Sure enough, the woman was a woman. The teacher was a woman who did the biting. It was a woman who got bit. It was a woman who did the biting. And of course, nobody is surprised at the political parties, uh, which <laughs> the two belong to. Uh, it's, it's Yeah, I, I'll just, I'm just going to leave that there, right? I, I don't even know where to go with it, except however beautiful that teacher might otherwise be, which odds are high, she's not a very beautiful woman. Once you find out she bit the political opponent at some rally she was protesting, can you think of her as beautiful anymore? I I think not. I can't, anyways. On the other side of the country, south side of the country, Michigan's way up at the top, in the north, on the border with Canada, down on our southern border with the Gulf of Mexico, in Florida, Harris Rigby over at NotTheBee.com published a piece yesterday, Democrat blows whistle on election fraud in Florida, claims to have evidence of illegal ballot harvesting and tampering over the last 20 years. And this one as well, I'm not going to get too, too much into. I'll throw a link in and you can check it out for yourself. But long and short of it, when Democrats are coming forward and saying, this is illegal, this is wrong, it's immoral, boy howdy, is the Democrat Party in trouble especially if they've been doing this for 20 years. And see, this is part of what gives me optimism. There's this concern that the game is rigged and it doesn't matter who you vote for. They're just going to cheat the powers that be, the status quo keepers, the central bankers, the media interests, the corporate interests, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're just going to figure out how many votes they need to cheat by and remove that number of votes from the people they don't want to win, add those votes to the people they do want to win, and then your host. So what the, what's the point of showing up in that case? Well, a couple things. One, at a certain point, they can't cheat hard enough. And then the game is over for them. For two, when you have a bipartisanship <laughs> objection, and, and let's be very clear. Yes, Republicans can be this way. But what's interesting, what's happened in this election, and this has been reported on far and wide, you have had Democrats pouring money into what they deemed to be the most radical Republican conservative candidates in primaries. Carrie Lake was just such 
a candidate. Democrats thought their gal, their pick for governor of Arizona was going to do best against Kerry Lake. And so they put their weight behind, put their money behind, even registered as Republicans so they could vote in the primaries, actually, according to reporting by undercover reporting by Project Veritas, interviewing the Democrat candidate's sister, actually, or talking with her undercover, they backed Carrie Lake because they thought, oh, she's so extreme. She's so over the top. She's so ridiculous. <clears throat> There's no way we can lose to her. Well, it looks like you're about to. So what if that strategy backfires in a big way, coast to coast, and these so-called most radical folks who were never supposed to win actually do end up winning here, there, and everywhere? And what if they end up getting wise and cleaning up this corruption from the inside? Governments do get corrupt. That happens. That's happened throughout history. But that is to say, just because we all alike have a sinful nature, that doesn't mean that it's all the same how corrupt a government, a particular government gets, or a particular country gets at a particular point in time. Our country has been more corrupt, I think, in recent years. We're getting riper and riper for judgment. But that is to say, we've been less corrupt at certain points in our history. I'm convinced of that. You don't want to believe it. You don't want to hear that. I guess that's on you. But I just don't think there's any denying it. So if we have been less corrupt at certain points in our history, and if that is desirable, and it is, that tells me there's a possibility we could be less corrupt again. Whistleblowers coming forward, us hearing about it, that's a good start. It might not be all that is needed, but it's a good start. Speaking of corruption, check out this bit of audio I'm going to play for you. It's a retracted story that was run by NBC concerning Paul Pelosi, the husband, 82-year-old husband of Speaker of the House, hopefully for not much longer, Nancy Pelosi. Actually, it's almost guaranteed. I mean, looking at the, looking at the polling... It is almost guaranteed that Nancy Pelosi will no longer be Speaker of the House here very shortly. Hopefully never again, actually. This is a NBC News Friday's installment of the Today Show with national correspondent Miguel Almaguer, giving us some details that are just frankly odd. They're just odd details. Take a listen. NBC News learning new details about the moments police arrived. Sources familiar with what unfolded in the Pelosi residence now revealing when officers responded to the high-priority call, they were seemingly unaware they'd been called to the home of the Speaker of the House. After a knock and announce, the front door was opened by Mr. Pelosi. The 82-year-old did not immediately declare an emergency or try to leave his home, but instead began walking several 
feet back into the foyer toward the assailant and away from police. It's unclear if the 82-year-old was already injured or what his mental state was, say sources. According to court documents, when the officer asked what was going on, defendant smiled and said everything's good. But instantaneously, a struggle ensued as police clearly saw David DePap strike Paul Pelosi in the head with a hammer. After tackling the suspect, officers rushed to Mr. Pelosi, who was lying in a pool of blood. Law enforcement officials tell us the bottom line here is this was a terrifying situation. We still don't know exactly what unfolded between Mr. Pelosi and the suspect for the 30 minutes they were alone inside that house before police arrived. Officials who were investigating this matter would not go into further details about these new details. And cut. Now, the text on the screen that you can't see in this piece by Joseph A. Wolfson over at Fox News, in which this video that I just played the uh, audio for you was embedded, the text on the screen reads, NBC News has not clarified what specifically did not meet its reporting standards. So they pulled that report. They pulled it. It went viral on Twitter, but then they pulled it. And they said it didn't meet its reporting standards, uh, NBC News reporting standards. That was their justification. That was their rationale. Now, Daniel Payne, also yesterday, over at Not The Bee, has this little write-up. Can someone please explain to me why this major NBC scoop about the Pelosi attack flatly contradicts the federal government's claims about the incident? And there are two excerpts, one from what the San Francisco County Superior Court uh, had filed as far as a statement or an update, a brief overview of the attack on Speaker Pelosi's husband. District Attorney Brooke Jenkins is quoted here as saying, Mr. Pelosi opened the door with his left hand. As the door opened, the two men stood in the dimly lit foyer Facing the officers, Mr. Pelosi nervously but calmly greeted them. When the officer asked what was going on, defendant smiled and said, everything's good, and pulled his hands toward his body. When an officer turned on his flashlight, defendant could be seen holding the bottom handle of the hammer with one hand and Mr. Pelosi's right arm with the other. Okay, so there's one claim. One account from the DA, Brooke Jenkins. But here's another account from FBI Special Agent Stephanie Miner filed in an affidavit in the Northern California U.S. District Court. At 2.31 a.m., San Francisco Police Department, SFPD, Officer Colby Wilms responded to the Pelosi residence, California, and knocked on the front door. When the door was opened, Pelosi and DePape were both holding a hammer with one hand, and DePape had his other hand holding onto Pelosi's forearm. Pelosi greeted the officers. The officers asked them what was going on. DePape responded that everything was good. Officers then asked Pelosi and DePape to drop the hammer. Now, these are very different accounts from what NBC's sources in the story that they retracted were telling them. Most notably, it's a very, very odd story that NBC News, before they retracted their reporting, gives us that Pelosi answers the door and after opening the door for police, walked several feet back towards 
his alleged assailant just prior to being hit in the head with the hammer. Why, if he was really all that concerned, if Mr. Pelosi was all that concerned, why would he walk back towards DePape? Why, if he was very concerned for his own safety, wouldn't he open the door and run through it to be on the other side of the police, have the police between him and DePape? It's a very, very curious thing. So these things don't add up. These stories, these accounts don't add up. What actually happened? It's hard telling. Mr. Pelosi, Mr. DePape, the law enforcement that responded to the call, they know. All we really know is that there are some discrepancies. And either A, it's not a good look for NBC News that they ran a story that might be completely bogus from unreliable sources, or the accounts filed by DA Brooke Jenkins or FBI Special Agent Stephanie Miner are uh, fictitious. Because in the run-up to the midterm election, a certain narrative is desired, which can't be supported by what actually happened. That's a possibility. What actually happened here? Well, I know this. I know that it's San Francisco. I know that I don't trust Democrats at all, at all. I don't trust San Francisco. I don't trust California. I don't trust the FBI. I don't trust NBC News. I know that. The Blaze points out that NBC News is just getting absolutely torched for their vague rationale, pulling this report just hours after airing it, and not for no reason. Either double-check your sources before you run with a story and make sure they're sound and then keep that report up there, regardless of whether it's going to be damaging to Democrats or just going to be odd and a weird look. You know, keep that story up there if we potentially have San Francisco's DA and the FBI running interference for the Pelosi's, or don't run that story in the first place. Now, what really happened here, actually? I'll tell you what story it reminds me of, and I don't know whether this has any relationship whatsoever, but it reminds me of Democratic donor and political activist, very, very wealthy man, Ed Buck, being convicted in the deaths of two men who overdosed in his, uh, I think it was West Hollywood apartment. It turned out Ed Buck was trading drugs for sex with these men. And then they end up overdosing in his place. And he's been convicted of that. Could you potentially have a similar kind of scenario with Paul Pelosi? I don't know. I'm not claiming that. But it's a very curious, very, very curious thing when the details don't add up, when it's not a good look, when we're this close to the midterm elections. That's all I'm saying. I also know that it was a very unusual choice of advertisements that seemed to be consistently paired with my family and I trying to watch Little House on the Prairie on Amazon Prime last night. We rearranged our main floor and are still in the process. Today, we'll be doing even more. But basically, what was our dining room prior to the floors being replaced is now going to be our living room. And 
We got the TV up. We moved the couches down. And we thought, over supper, maybe it would be fun because we haven't set up the dining room yet. The new dining room, with the new dining room being what was formerly our sitting room, the front room of the house. But it's a longer room, so it, you know, it's not ideal because it is the front room of the house, but it's a longer room, so it's more ideal for the size table we have and the size family we have. We're watching Little House on the Prairie, and I kid you not, it was again and again that the advertisements on the commercial breaks were for HIV meds. And I'm thinking to myself, why do I keep seeing all of these commercials for HIV meds? Also, why do I keep seeing commercials for birth control again and again and again? Why do I see so many commercials for medicine to help with heart attacks? It's a very odd look. I've been watching a lot of black sales by myself, and I think I might give up on that show because it's just, it, it's, well, it's about pirates. So of course it's going to be degenerate, but I'm curious about the subject because I like historical dramas. I like period dramas in general. And after reading Colin Woodward's Republic of Pirates, I've been somewhat fascinated by what was the real history of the Pirates of the Caribbean. What really happened there? It's over the top. The show is over the top. I can't recommend it. And I think I'm done with it. But watching as much as I did over Hulu the past week, every commercial was either HIV meds or birth control or something to do with bad hearts, literally bad hearts, hearts that are failing, that are not up to the challenge of sustaining life. So I know that something is going on, that this now is a big push that we all need HIV meds, I guess, really badly. Go figure. I know that. Again, does that have any relation on the Paul Pelosi story? I don't know. I know it has a lot of relation to San Francisco, but that brings us back to the article from last episode that we were talking about concerning Christian nationalism, misrepresenting Jesus, according to Jonathan Lehman, Therefore, we need to abandon and reject this idea, this philosophy of Christian nationalism. Lehman writes, In short, Christian nationalism, in the sense of identity or establishment, doesn't push forward toward the eschaton, but backward towards the old covenant. It's anti-new covenant. It nominalizes Christianity and, within a generation, undermines it altogether. I think that's quite a charge that Christian nationalism is anti-New Covenant. And Lehman says several times that Christian nationalism is pro-nominalism, or it is nominalistic. I think that's an indication of how much his position regarding Christian nationalism rests on that point, how often he keeps going back to nominalism. He's very, very concerned about nominalism. But again, I have to ask, why would a nation being marked and distinguished by Christianity be nominalist when Lehman doesn't hold that Christianity influencing a nation is. Come to think of it, what exactly is Lehman saying about efforts at Christian influence on a nation except that he believes it's ultimately a fruitless endeavor since the nation will not submit to said influence? Or for that matter, since he says Christianity is undermined within a generation by Christian nationalism, is he basically admitting that a given generation of Americans, past, present, or future, might choose as one man, to use some biblical language, 
to govern itself according to the word, yet see a generation come after it, which throws off all reverence for Christ. If that's what Lehman is saying, that one generation might choose national identity that is distinctly Christian, and then the next generation will rebel entirely, we can look back at the Old Testament in our Bibles to be instructed and enlightened rather than, as Lehman seems to suppose, to become anti-New Covenant. I don't think it's anti-New Covenant to look back at the Old Testament and be taught by it that this happens. You do have sometimes a generation that follows after the Lord, and then the next generation turns away from the Lord. Or sometimes you have a generation that turns away from the Lord, and then you have a generation that turns back to the Lord. It was certainly the case that God blessed some generations of Israelites, even as he punished severely other generations. But Lehman seems to be arguing like the most fatalistic parts of Ecclesiastes, that all the obedience and faithfulness of those generations of Israelites that God blessed was for nothing if the generations that followed them did not all likewise keep the faith and enjoy the same blessings. I think this cuts both ways. It was a mercy, for instance, that God made Israel to wander in the desert for 40 years until all that generation of adults he'd brought out of Egypt had died in the desert, except for Joshua and Caleb, by the way. It was a mercy because what does God do after that whole generation dies in the desert? He brings the next generation into the promised land, and he gives it to them as he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Lehman seems to argue that previous generations of Americans being godlier and more Christian in their national identity was worthless or even sent people to hell if our generation has turned away from God in increasing numbers, even down to this day. I don't think this is so much pro-New Covenant as it is ignoring the Old Testament, I'm sad to say. But Lehman writes, beyond that... I'd argue historically that the faith-robbing power of establishment Christianity is one significant reason why the church-established nations of Europe secularized, or better, paganized, much more quickly than the disestablishmentarian United States. Not only that, but my anecdotal sense is also that sincere Christian language and arguments have long been more common in the American public square than in European ones. Why? Though it may seem counterintuitive to people like us who prefer living by sight and sword and not by faith, disestablishmentarianism yields a vibrant faith that's politically active, not merely tokenized. Now, putting aside for a moment how much I dislike the slipping in of the dig, which I don't know who he's talking about when he says we, we prefer living by sight and sword and not by faith. That's just a low blow. That's a pot shot. Do we prefer living by sight and sword and not by faith? How do you reckon, right? What's your evidence? That's a pretty serious charge. A lot of these are very serious charges, but what's that based on? Not merely tokenized. Again, that's a pot shot. Yes, we want a vibrant faith that's politically active. Not merely tokenized. I agree. But who are you arguing against? Those who would say, I embrace the idea of Christian nationalism, so-called, I didn't pick it, but if you want to call it that, sure. Yeah, I'm a Christian nationalist. Sure. He would imply, I am for a faith that is merely tokenized. And I say, that's highly offensive and not at all true. 
No, no. But I think besides that, a better historical argument can be found. For instance, look at how stubbornly hostile to Reformation both the church and the state in France were. Look at how that stubborn hostility towards Reformation fed into the French Revolution. Look at how the ideas of the French Revolution spread like wildfire throughout Europe and helped thereby to create what we conceive of as the modern era, the modern sensibility, the modern social imaginary, as it's sometimes called. Then look historically at how that modern social imaginary led to unbridled, unrestrained, unreserved faith in scientific and industrialized progress among Europeans, which then turned into horror in World Wars I and II. As all that science and industry and progress turned out to be, in the absence of God, more and more efficient, brutal, evil ways to destroy ourselves and one another. The cities and people of Europe and the world wrecked for decades at the outset of the 20th century. But this was not the reason for secularization. World Wars I and II were caused by secularization. And yet, the modern world did not stop to ask whether World Wars I and II were caused by too much Christian nationalism or not enough. The answer was assumed and rammed through by the powers that be. Since Darwin's day, the status quo has increasingly been shifting towards more of the French philosophe attitude with regards to religion. Use religion. Use tokenized Christianity if you must, or abolish public faith entirely if you think that would be more useful or if you prefer. The result in Europe, especially to World Wars I and II, was an existential crisis for Western civilization, full of loathing and self-doubt, as Weird Al might say, and to a greater extent in Europe, not because, I would say, first and foremost, Europe was more establishmentarian and the U.S. was more disestablishmentarian with regards to Christianity and the state, but as much or more because Europe was ground zero for the destruction of World War I and II. The U.S. had an ocean on either side between us and the thick of the fighting, the bombing campaigns, the starvation, the machine gun nests. We sent men off the fight. Sure, we got images back and stories back, sure, but the psychological distance, the physical distance has helped us to be insulated from the extreme existential crisis that Europe has been suffering from. And yet, I note, I note, we're still not giving up on this de facto atheism that is inherent to the ascendant political philosophy of the modern era. We're not giving up on it. Lehman wants us, it seems like, to have more of it. And yet, on the other hand, he compares the secularization of European nations with secularization here in the U.S. 
and says that the rate of secularization has been slower here in the U.S., like that's a good thing, a good thing for us that it's been slower. But shouldn't this be just the opposite if Lehman wants us to embrace secularization here in the U.S., relegating the influence of Christianity to merely that influence only? Shouldn't Lehman prefer that the U.S. would be more like Europe? Wouldn't he prefer that we secularize more quickly, all the sooner we can stop sending to hell these people who falsely think themselves Christians because of cultural Christianity or political Christianity. He implies that it's a good thing that we here in the U.S. were disestablishmentarian a long time ago. And yet, I think also, too, this is why those like myself who hearken back to a restoration of Christian nationalism, not some newfangled thing, but a restoration of what was a reformation along the lines of what we've lost, given up on, allowed to fall into disrepair. We should not be understood as calling for the state to establish an official church of the United States. We never had one before. So we're not wanting to go back to having one again. The founding fathers didn't regard what they were doing as establishing a state church. And neither should we suppose that governing according to Christian principles, favoring the Christian religion and Christian morality would mean establishing a state church. It's not careful. It's not wise to conflate these things. We need to go back to the drawing board as far as our understanding of European church history, the Reformation, Counter-Reformation, et cetera, et cetera, if we think that there's no difference there. That's just not careful. That's just not the way that it is. What folks like me who would, if it's pressed upon us, accept the label Christian nationalism are wanting is to go back to a broad-based agreement as to self-evident Christian morality as it's been understood for over 2,000 years. But Lehman writes, To my establishmentarian friends, don't make Peter's mistake. Don't pick up the sword in the Garden of Gethsemane. The sword has good, God-given work to do to provide a platform for the church to stand on and safe roads so that we can drive to church. But we're not going to advance the kingdom through the sword. Many of the founding fathers and their Baptist sympathizers understood this. A religion that required the force of the sword was a weak religion indeed, they said. Once again, who is Lehman arguing against here? I don't know anybody who is saying we ought to be spreading Christian faith or advancing the kingdom via the sword. But again, it seems like either he fundamentally misunderstands or he's entirely accepting wholesale, uncritically, the criticisms of our godless detractors or he's okay with using straw man arguments. I can't tell which one of those is going on here, but I think it's one of those three. Either way, in any of those scenarios, all of the above, whichever three, more care is needed than Lehman is displaying here in talking about the Garden of Gethsemane and swords. So, for instance, Lehman talks about and admits to the appropriateness of civil authorities bearing the sword for something, and yet the way he is talking about Christians in particular relating to the sword of government authority, of civil authority, is very Anabaptist. It's very pacifistic. It's also not very direct. 
It's implied, it's insinuated, it needs to be directly stated, and he needs to be able to defend his rationale, make his case. But what's the argument? That Christians shouldn't serve in governmental, law enforcement, or military positions at all? Or, if they are allowed to, in his view, without spreading Christianity via the sword, or picking up the sword in the Garden of Gethsemane, or making Peter's mistake... Do they have to pretend like they're not Christians so they don't risk anybody conflating the witness and testimony of the church with their actions on behalf of the state or the government or the civil authorities or what have you? I see this is what folks like me are talking about when we push back and we say, it seems like you want de facto atheism. Oh, no, no, no. That's not what we want. Well, yeah, but, yeah, but it is though, actually. It is. You can't have it both ways. In the interest of consistency and being direct and clear, what you are arguing for is more of the same, maintaining the status quo as it is now, all the while admitting that this has not always been the way that it was. It sounds to me like you just don't want to deal with it. You're comfortable, and yet you're projecting onto folks like me that we are only wanting comfort. I, I don't think so. I think that's not charitable. I think that's not reasonable. I think that does not follow. It doesn't hold up under scrutiny. Lehman writes, finally, a word to the critics, especially the Christian ones who deride even Christian influence. Christian influence in the public square shows love for Christians and non-Christians alike. It's loving to seek justice for our neighbors. If God made this world, he best knows how to operate it, whether people acknowledge him or not. By God's wisdom, kings reign and rulers decree what is just, Proverbs 8.15. If God says X is an injustice and Y is just, that's what X and Y are. There's no alternative interpretation of X and Y. There's no neutral brand of justice out there. See, on this, I, I agree, right? I agree. I entirely agree. I have no complaints with or objections to this paragraph by Lehman. I just don't know that he agrees with it. I don't know that he consistently is thinking the way that he's talking there. He continues, the public square I've said over and over is a battleground of gods. Either my God or yours will win the majorities and pull the levers of power. The public square is not religiously neutral and laws are not morally neutral. To be sure, the scales of justice should be impartial or blind, as one friendly critic has accused me of denying. Yet the foundation of our laws is never neutral. Everyone does what they do in the public square in service to their gods. That's true of the Christian and the Hindu, the secularist and the Marxist. We should then seek to apply or implement those laws impartially, objectively, and even neutrally, because that's what the Bible says we should do. Deuteronomy 16, 19, Proverbs 24, 23. And again, <clears throat> I agree with what Lehman is saying here, but what this shows is that he is able to answer his own question from earlier. Lehman knows that similar advantages as are conferred to even the non-Christian children of Christian parents are also conferred to non-Christians governed by Christian government, so-called. Having already said, and you can go back to my last episode to be reminded if you need to, but what I mean by Christian government is not that the government as a whole is baptized and going to heaven, but rather the same thing that we would say of a Christian school or a Christian radio station or a Christian publishing company 
and understand one another to mean that these are institutions committed to, oriented towards, intent on operating, speaking, working according to what God's word says is true and good and right. What God commands, what God promises, what God's character is known to be. But where Lehman states what I agree with, that the foundation of our laws is never neutral, it has to be inherently religious. To say we Christians want only to influence that, but never to establish the identity, never really fully to succeed, that seems to my mind to imply that we want Christ's role relative to the civil magistrate to only ever be advisory, never effectively authoritative. Perish the thought. It it doesn't seem like it's something Lehman even has entertained. He just ruled it out entirely or didn't think of it, doesn't imagine it's possible for Christians to serve in these governmental positions, to serve in office, to be legislators, to be judges, to be governors or mayors or city councilmen, if they are serving in these capacities and they have authority and they have to make decisions and they have to vote for and against things, they have to be for and against things, they have to do and not do things from a position of authority. How then, if we get more and more and more of that and they actually succeed, those Christians in public office, how then would we say We only want their Christian faith to influence. We don't want them to actually identify as Christians. And we don't want them to influence our governmental process, our political process, to such an extent that both we and those on the outside would say the character of our nation, of our institutions, of our society is Christian. I don't see how such a view could ever be preferable to wanting our nation to be distinctly Christian in character. Yes, that aim is always going to be imperfect. Its execution is always going to be imperfect. Its achievement, this side of the eschaton, is always going to be imperfect. And yet, even so, far less perfect is tacitly committing ourselves to the foundation of our laws being predicated on the worship of other gods or no god at all. And what's this about applying or implementing laws impartially, objectively, and even neutrally, because that's what God's word tells us to? Maybe I'm misunderstanding, but I took Lehman to be saying, we ought not under any circumstances call our nation a Christian one or aspire for it to become a country that we could call a Christian one. And yet, what other kind of country could ours be but a Christian one if these are our aims and such are our reasons and we are successful? It feels as though Lehman is saying, by all means, let's try, but also at the same time, insisting doggedly that we shouldn't suppose we would ever be successful. It's a very sad and disheartening and demotivating premise. That's a very discouraging position to take. And I reject it. I reject that. I can't function that way. We can't function that way. I just am not sure... He's being honest with himself that that is what he's saying. That's what he's embracing. That's what he's arguing. He continues, if what you want is a Christian-influenced nation, then I stand with you. Yet an actual Christian nation has never existed and never will. Christian Europe was never really Christian. It was a continent of people sprinkled with water as infants. You know what? If this is Lehman's position, it's an odd thing that he worries so much about something 
he says, is totally impossible. If a Christian nation has never existed, never will exist, well, I don't know what he's warning us about, unless he just thinks we're chasing a mirage. I think he says that a Christian nation has never existed in large part, however, because his definition of what must be true of a nation before it could be legitimately called Christian is unreasonable. By playing with the definitions, he has put a Christian nation outside of the realm of possibility, not just now, but ever. In the future, in the past, it's never existed, it never will exist. Well, yeah, but you made a definition in such a way as to make it impossible, which is kind of cheating. It's it's bad form. That's not what I'm meaning, clearly. That's not what others who are conservative Christians are meaning. You know that, but this isn't reasonable. This is a bit of a cheap trick, unfortunately. And it might be a cheap trick he's playing on himself, but I don't need to join him in being tricked. In fact, I have no interest in being tricked along with him. I don't want to be self-deceived. And I certainly don't want to be deceived by other people's self-deception. Lehman holds to such a high bar of what a Christian nation has to be in order to be legitimate, where all citizens of the nation must be Christians or else that nation cannot be called Christian. That, you know what, frankly, if he's right, that that is what a Christian nation must be, such a thing has never existed. And yet Lehman has to be wrong when he says such a thing will never exist. Since we know that the new creation will have at least a nation, possibly even a multitude of nations, my own personal opinion, which I can tell you some other time, is that we may organize ourselves in nations. I have reasons. They have to do with Revelation. Kings of the earth coming into New Jerusalem. But as I've said before, Lehman's definition is not one that anyone who actually is for what is called Christian nationalism would accept as reasonable. And it's certainly not the definition that they are using. It's not their position. Therefore, it is a bit of a straw man, intentionally or not. It's a straw man argument. Rather than dealing with the merits or demerits of their position, Lehman defines his terms in such a way as to do an end run around actually having to make arguments or answer their arguments. Let me say that again. I think Lehman is making a straw man argument. I think he exaggerates to absurd and unreasonable lengths the rather more modest aims of Christian nationalists until they become completely indefensible. That's a cheap trick. And if it's not that, then he is just frankly not thinking carefully enough about this, or he really just doesn't understand what Christian nationalists so-called are for. But then he finishes off with this, and this last paragraph is the kind of thing being written into an article that will, it will make me say, I don't think this is very well written. I think this could have been a lot better. Lehman writes, actually, I take that back. A Christian nation does exist, and it's called the church. First Peter 2.9, it's comprised of people from every nation on earth. Perhaps the best way to become a real Christian nationalist then is to join a church. You know what? That's trite. That's a, that's a rather trite way to leave off. You might as well say 
Somebody should join a church if they want a Christian family or a Christian school. We have to know that not everyone who attends a church or is on the membership list of a local congregation or denomination is in fact themselves a Christian. By Lehman's reasoning, it's not actually a church. So how do you know uh, where to join if you have to be absolutely 100% convinced of the personal salvation of every last man, woman, and child who attends that church or who says they are part of that church or who is a member of that church or that denomination. The way he's played games with definitions here, you never can be quite sure you've even joined a legitimate church because it might not be a Christian church. I mean, I guess it could be a church. It could be a church, but you won't know that it's a Christian church. Let's put it that way because church, ecclesia, in ancient Greece was actually just the assembly of the citizens of a city-state to decide matters of public importance, to make decisions together. That's all politics is. That's all politics is, making decisions together. But you know what? I have a better idea. Rather than us embracing consistently Lehman's faulty way of reasoning here, let's reject it consistently. We don't hold off on calling a church or denomination Christian on the off chance we might give some people the wrong idea regarding a goat among the sheep or a tear among the sheaves of wheat. Lehman seems to have embraced the growing antipathy toward the concept of national self-interest, and yet he's smuggled it in like so many others on the left and among the secularists and among the progressives theologically. He has smuggled that antipathy, that hostility towards the idea of national self-interest he smuggled it in amidst a lot of pot shots at people who think national self-interest is legitimate, necessary, appropriate, responsible, essential. To my way of thinking, this piece by Lehman at Nine Marks is part of the growing push for global governance over the past century. It's not the first. It's not even the most important. It won't be the last. Every time I see something like this or hear something like this, I think to myself, man, don't we know who's going to rule a global government? I mean, surely if we knew who was going to be ruling a global one world government, we wouldn't be welcoming that possibility because that's the alternative. That's the other option aside from national self-interest is a one world government. The reason why national self-interest is being torn down is so that we accept one world government. And as Christians, we might say, okay, well, that's in Revelation. But that doesn't mean that we then are free to welcome, cheer, justify, or facilitate the Antichrist just because we know who wins in the end. No, 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 no. No. You know, it's well enough to say you don't like earthly nations. They're all imperfect and corruptible at best. You prefer the kingdom come and what is spiritual over what is temporal. Same here. I totally agree with that. Yep. Me also. But that's not where folks like Jonathan Lehman are content to leave off. This treads dangerously close to neo-Gnosticism. Not just with his, but consistently the arguments that are adjacent to this, which are foundational to this way of thinking, this way of reasoning. There's nothing here that is helping us to clarify or formulate 
or develop a theology or philosophy of material stewardship or politics. Instead, what we find is know-nothing and do-nothing Christianity that insists on disengagement as the most spiritual option due to what seems first and foremost to be a fatalistic cynicism in search of a spiritualized rationalization. Material bad, spiritual good. And what's this about joining a church? As if those who are not part of a local church are the only ones being described as Christian nationalists. I mean, what if, crazy idea, what if a lot of the folks who are for this Christian nationalism thing are already part of a local church? What if? What if? Also, too, can I just point out, in no particular order, these are just a scatter plot of thoughts with regards to the way this ended off. The term Christian itself was originally a pejorative. It was used mockingly to describe followers of the way as little Christs. What the early church didn't do is say we should abandon this term Christian because they're associating all of these scandalous accusations against us that might hurt our testimony. They're associating all of those with this term they're using for us, Christian. The early church didn't do that. In fact, it embraced the term. But by Lehman's reasoning, we never would have. Those early Christians, those early followers of the way, would have hand-wringingly given into the fear that somebody might get the wrong idea about who Christ is from looking at us. That sounds very spiritual, right? Well, I don't want to call myself a Christian. You know, it's like my son to some extent. I'm much more charitable towards my son for his reasons against wanting to be called a saint. I understand them. I think he's mistaken, but he's also open to being corrected and being mistaken on that point. We don't say the term Christian is dangerous because people might suppose looking at us, imperfect as we are, frail, finite as we are, we're misrepresenting Jesus. No, no, no. What do we do instead? We say, we're going to embrace this term Christian. If our faith is in Christ, if we are in Christ, we're going to embrace that term Christian and we're going to live up to, by God's grace, the example that has been set before us by Christ. All the while saying very clearly, I am not Christ. I am not perfect. I'm still a work in progress. God's not finished with me. So also with Christian nationalism. And if not, why not? Why do the rules suddenly change? It goes without saying that Lehman's is an unworkable paradigm. That paradigm is not what was handed down to us by the generations of Christians who went before us, certainly not in the case of the pejorative Christian. They embraced it. They didn't run from it at the first wave of derision. One final thought. This is a quote from Pericles ancient Athenian statesman, general. Just because you do not take an interest in politics doesn't mean politics won't take an interest in you. As Christians, we can say, that's not our business. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Everything that is your business has been declared political. Mankind was my business, Ebenezer Scrooge concludes in A Christmas Carol. The welfare of the city is your business. Check out The City of God by Augustine.
There is an apologetic, which we need to become familiar with, concerning how Christians relate, how the church relates to the civil authorities, to those who are inside and outside the church, with regards to our testimony. It is not just a question of which way do I go to get them to stop saying mean things about me? Which way do I go to get them to like me? Which way do I go to get them to give me some peace and quiet and some rest? We've got to dig deeper. There's more to it than that. But speaking of more to it than that, it is my birthday after all. We've got a house to put back together. We've got furniture to move back into place. I got to run. I am told, it being my birthday, I need to get some donuts. I think my kids want donuts, especially. But I should go and oblige them, I suppose. I suppose I could be prevailed on to have a donut or two for my birthday. Maybe we can get our dining room put back together, have donuts in there. Maybe, maybe. Tell the righteous it will be well with them. I'm thankful that we have this opportunity. I'm thankful on my birthday to have breath in my lungs, to be alive, to enjoy the blessings of a family and a home in this country. I'm hopeful in God that he has good work for us to do and that we should not grow weary in doing it, that there is a blessing and a reward from him and that that is enough for us and that needs to be enough for us. We identify with that. Whatever the nation does, the kind of influence we must exert has to do with the lordship of Christ. And you know what? That includes even getting some donuts on my birthday with my family, putting a house back together, enjoying some rest. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.